Hello and welcome to Ask Science Mike. This is a weekly podcast where we believe that every sincere question deserves an honest and non-judgmental response. I'm your host, Mike McCarg, and this is one of those special episodes. So the normal format for this program is people send in questions using the website asksciencemike.com, and I respond to those questions uh, with both empathy and evidence-based information. And I love that show. And uh, sometimes we have requests from the listeners of this program to dig deep into one topic, and that's the kind of show we're going to have today. And if you notice the title of this episode in your podcast player, you know what we're going to talk about. This episode is titled The Second Wave, and so this is going to be an episode about COVID-19. Now, for a little while, I was doing a lot of COVID-19 episodes, and they were uh, wildly popular. They were Lots and lots of downloads from folks because, uh, unfortunately, in our media landscape and our cultural context, it is difficult to get high-quality information about this pandemic that we're all facing together. And, um, you know, people were basically just asking me to help uh, provide some guidance with media literacy and what information we could trust and uh, what might be happening and what science said. And I did a lot of those episodes. And honestly, I got discouraged because, um, you know, it didn't seem to help the outcomes, the responses, especially in the United States to COVID-19, uh, did not seem improved or better because of those efforts. Uh, I also thought people needed a break from COVID-19. So I returned to uh, my regular show format. And, um, you know, based on the data that I'm seeing and based on your messages, your cards and letters, which I do get and receive and read them all. If you send me a card or letter in the mail, I do read all of those. Um, and I have heard your requests loud and clear, uh, to do another COVID-19 episode. So that's what we're going to do today. Uh, especially because I keep hearing so much about this second wave. Uh, Way back when COVID-19 was beginning, we wondered if we would defeat the first wave and then have kind of a more calm summer and then have a second wave, a second period of rising infections or rapidly rising infections uh, toward the fall of the year, especially if that coincided with cold and flu season. And now, as cases are on a rapid ascent in the United States again, uh, I hear a lot of people talking about a second wave. And I want to be really clear. What's happening now in no way meets the epidemiological criteria for a second pandemic wave. It's still the first wave. Other than key areas in the Northeast, New York, New Jersey, those areas, Uh, which have legitimately had a first wave and legitimately brought their caseload down, the rest of the country just flattened the first wave out, but never actually meaningfully uh, ended that wave. And so what what we're seeing now is the first wave for real, for the first time in most parts of the country. Now, 
the United States and Brazil, frankly, uh, and Sweden are three countries that have just blown it with COVID-19. Just absolutely um, will be historical cases for what not to do in a pandemic. Why do I say that? If you look at the cases per 100,000 people, New York, Brazil, and Sweden are in a completely different category than every other country in the world. Even when you think of places like Italy and Spain that were hit harder sooner, uh, their maximum caseload per 100,000 people is much lower than what's happening in the United States, Sweden, or Brazil right now. So we do have a second wave right now, but that second wave is a psychological wave. It's a wave of awareness, a wave of concern. It is not a second epidemiological wave. We are still in the first. And um, this most of what I'm going to say today is very difficult. It's very challenging. So um, as always, I'd like to invite you to listen to this episode at your own pace. I'd like you to pause the audio when necessary for you to reflect or to de-escalate. Uh, remember the kind of grounding exercises that are available to you anytime. You can focus on your breath. You can uh, focus on tactile sensations or things that you can see, hear, and smell around you. You can remind you that you are here and now and that here and now you are safe, right? You can go through grounding exercises anytime you want, and that might be necessary as we look at the reality of what our collective actions um, are bringing to our life experiences and to our culture. Um, and here's the first really big scary thing I'm going to say today. Our utter failure to meaningfully respond to COVID-19 means that this pandemic is going to be with us for a long time, longer than it needed to be. Easily 2021 or even 2022, we're still going to be in the middle of managing this pandemic, likely. There's a couple of uh, ways that might not happen, but they're, they're long shots at this point. So it is very very conceivable that in July of 2022, uh, we're still having to social distance. We still have a uh, strain on the healthcare system. We still regularly uh, have people in our lives that we know and love that are uh, impacted in the various ways COVID-19 can impact people, including death, by the way. And gosh, this is why I've been so sad and why I've been so stressed out. Friends, can I just tell you that this was completely avoidable? How do I know that? Because most countries, developed countries around the world, have in fact contained COVID-19. They did it. <laughs> it worked. Um, some countries have reopened schools without surges of infections. They've been able to reopen most of their economies without waves of infections. Uh, so it is possible to contain COVID-19. It is possible to avoid a crushing strain on the healthcare system. It is possible to avoid mass deaths. And how do we know that? Because countries have done it. 
I have to take a deep breath myself there because I have such a sense of sadness. You see, America's sense of rugged individualism has backfired. Our sense of self-sufficiency, our sense of self-reliance, and frankly, our sense of self-importance over others is what's driving this problem. I mean, wearing a mask, a common sense, easy solution that slows the spread, makes it easier to protect people who are more at risk from COVID, makes it easier to have more economic activity and in doing so protect people's livelihoods. We have allowed wearing a mask to be turned into some kind of partisan culture war statement. Now, you could say this is a Trump thing or a conservative thing. I'll get to that in a moment. Because we've also seen People, especially young people, and this includes people of all political orientations and ideologies, are belligerent and defiant with contact tracers. I read some reporting this morning where you know just completely exasperated contact tracers are saying that when they go and they ask young people who test positive for COVID-19, Where have you been and who have you been with? The most fundamental part of contact tracing, an essential part of containing a pandemic, they are met with answers like, that's none of your business. That's that sense of individualism. That's why our caseload in the United States is what it is. So this is, is Trump a problem? Absolutely. Trump might be marshalling the most ineffectual response to a pandemic possible. Literally the most ineffectual. But it's not just Trump and it's not even just conservatives. Not by any means. We have seen so many young people gathering together for close, physically close dance parties at lakes and beaches and in homes, home gatherings, which become COVID super spreader events because people are in close proximity with no masks, drinking, spraying aerosol droplets into the air. That's because young people have a sense of invincibility, which we will completely dismantle in the course of this podcast, by the way. We have parents letting their children get together in pods that end up overlapping. So if you if you have play dates with three other children... But those children have playdates with three other children that aren't in that pod. You create a branching network to spread COVID-19, folks. And that is just as common among progressives as conservatives. And the, the most uniting factor in the United States right now is a wholesale embrace of conspiracy theories. The absolute garbage that is getting sent to me, both by the public and my personal friends, is terrifying. No, 5G doesn't cause COVID-19. No, it's not. YouTube isn't censoring people who are telling the truth. The anti-vax movement is becoming virulent in anticipation of COVID-19 vaccines. Folks, we are reaping what we have sown in an anti-science anti-intellectual culture in the United States. And it is not just 
conservatives. One of the most disappointing things in my life is the degree to which legitimate critiques of the sciences, science's whiteness problem, for example, or the way that science has been used to erase the nuance of perspectives of marginalized people in society. Legitimate critiques of things like postmodernism have led to a wholesale rejection of the notion that there are facts at all, primarily by white people to feed a sense of epistemological entitlement, epistemological entitlement, a right to believe whatever I want to believe that makes me feel comfortable. And the cost right now is human lives and human livelihood. Because some data just came out this morning, and I, I, I have so many links this week in the show notes, and so I have a link to this so you can read it for yourself. COVID-19's impact is wildly racialized. Wildly racialized. COVID is impacting black and brown people so much more than white folks. When we look at cases per 10,000 people, the New York Times sued the CDC to get this information. Among all people, there are 38 coronavirus cases per 10,000 people. Among white people, there are 23 cases per 10,000 people. Among black people, there are 62 cases per 10,000 And among Latinx people, 73 cases per 10,000 people. Wildly racialized. And so our sense of entitlement as white people to think we can believe whatever we want to believe because this is too hard and we've got to see friends and we've got to go to parties because we're young or our kids are driving us crazy so they get to go do what they want to do friends it is killing black and brown people and the future will judge your actions and listen to me i judge your actions this is ridiculous folks we talk about mass protests because black lives matter and resisting police brutality while we engage in actions that are killing black and brown people in the United States today through COVID-19, friends, show up. Show up. If you believe that black lives matter, act like it and put on a damn mask. And keep your physical distance from others, other people. And you would say, but for how long? And I'm telling you this, for as long as it takes. Are we committed to justice around race or are we not? Because for most people, For most white people, COVID-19 will end up being an inconvenience. Meanwhile, my dear friend, 
Mickey Scott Bay Jones has lost multiple family members, including her mother. And so I am patient and I strive to be non judgmental. But, folks, I'm done. I am done. If you want to talk to me about your business or you want to talk to me about conspiracy theories, I'm going to talk to you about Mickey Scott Bay Jones and her mom. The impact of COVID-19 is wildly racialized. And the fact that white people, progressives and conservatives alike, pitch a fit about having to make lifestyle changes to slow the spread of this pandemic is a tool of white supremacy. Stop being white supremacists. Quite a soapbox this morning, but folks, I believe this. And I have the data to back me up. If anybody would like to debate me, you may try. Now, here's the other thing we're learning. This virus is likely wildly more contagious than we ever thought. We started to get some sense that the infection may have begun earlier than we believed and that it may be more widespread than we believed. And uh, the CDC uh, put out data. They believe that more than 20 million people in the United States alone may have already been infected. It's a lot bigger than the official case count by a factor of 10. Um, for what it's worth, I think that's that's very likely that cases are wildly undercounted and that COVID is far more infectious and less deadly than we believed at first, but still very deadly. So I want to be really clear when we hear more infections and people go, oh, good. So there's been more infections. There's still been a lot of deaths, folks. Those deaths are undercounted chronically. When we do uh, research and studies to look at that, we find that just in absolute races, the uh, absolute rates, the death rates are skyrocketing all over the country right now, far more than what's being reported to COVID-19. Uh, so COVID is still very deadly, very contagious and very deadly. And what we're looking at right now, so the, the problem with looking at a national caseload in the United States is that the U.S. is so big, it's so spread out, and COVID hasn't spread at the same rates in, in, in different places. Um, it's taking a lot longer to get into rural America, although my goodness, it is getting there. We're seeing some real super spreader events happening in rural communities now, but it took a lot longer, and so that meant we all saw what's happening in New York and everybody locked down. And it was the right move, by the way, but because we were locking down at different points in localized infections, right? That lockdown was really early in Wisconsin, right? So it did a good thing that when everyone locked down because New York had to, New York's lockdown was late. But for a lot of people, that was actually an early appropriate lockdown. If we would have combined that early lockdown with widespread taste, widespread testing and contact tracing, friends, we would have been like containing the pandemic. Instead, we did like a long lockdown with limited um, stimulus for people who are, whose incomes were impacted by that. 
creating a lot of fear, a lot of confusion, a lot of frustration, a lot of desperation. And so then people rocketed out of that extended shutdown. And then what's happening? Our national curve is sloping right back up. It was dropping for a while, not because cases were dropping everywhere, but because cases were dropping so fast in the New York area. So you have to be careful looking at the national graph. But if we look at the national graph right now, cases are absolutely skyrocketing. There won't be a simultaneous second wave, so-called second wave in the United States. The U.S. is too big. It'll happen county by county. So cases are skyrocketing. Deaths are not skyrocketing yet. And this is likely because the infections seem to be happening mostly among young people right now. Among essential workers who tend to be young, who have no choice but to be out, and among people who are ignoring the restrictions in order to socialize. That's where the spread is happening. And because it's younger people, younger people are much less likely to die from COVID-19. We already know that. The deaths are not skyrocketing yet. Hospitalizations are, especially in key areas like Texas and Florida just like they did in New York. The death rate, though, isn't going up yet. It's possible that the virus is mutated to be both more contagious and less deadly. And friends, if that is true, I'm going to be so happy. If the death rate never goes back up, you will not, like, I'm not going to pout. <laughs> I'll be really happy. But listen, it is so unwise to plan on this being true because it's still possible that all that's happened is we just have a lot of young people infections that are now going to spread through their social graphs to people who are more susceptible to severe case presentation and death, and then we will have a crushing death wave. Yeah, that could start, um, I mean, today's Monday. It could happen this week. We see that just a little tick up in the death curve and then another seven days, and the death graph is as steep as the infection graph is now. So it's unwise to, to plan on the virus is less deadly, so we don't have to change anything. But listen, this is important. Even if the virus is less deadly, it is not less debilitating. Because death is not the only negative outcome that can come from COVID-19. I've got a link in the show notes about COVID long haulers. People who get COVID and then have severe symptoms, not for weeks, but for months. Uh, we believe this is coming from tissue damage. People's uh, tissues get damaged from COVID-19, especially if it ends up provoking autoimmune responses. Their lungs can be damaged. Their brain can be damaged. Their cardiovascular system can be damaged. Major body systems can be debilitated. Gastrointestines can happen. There are people who've gotten COVID-19 and had severe diarrhea for months. It's terrible. And then there's another related condition, um, multi-symptom inflammatory syndrome, COVID, where uh, we believe a cytokine storm happens in the body and provokes an autoimmune response that can lead to brain fog, severe emotional impairment, gastrointestinal distress, debilitating waves of symptoms that come and go and change for months or longer. 
this is a debilitating, like you can't work, you can't function condition. It could be that for long haulers, there's a mix of, you know, a, a severe COVID presentation and MISC. But when we've studied MIS before, it happens with a family of viruses known as Epstein-Barr viruses, of which mononucleosis is one. And uh, for Epstein-Barr infections, MIS can happen for as many as 10% of patients. And early indications are that 10% is not an unreasonable number to expect for MIS cases for COVID. And young people are just as at risk here as other groups, perhaps even more at risk. Children, teenagers, and people in their 20s may be the most at risk for MISC. I want you to think about that for a moment. If you're young and you're out because you, you, you're you young and you feel invincible and you just want to dance, millions of young people in this country could get a debilitating autoimmune condition that lasts months or years. Think about how that is going to reshape our society. Young people are not invincible with COVID. Right now, they seem less likely to die. But death is not the only way that SARS-CoV-2 can impact your life or those you love. Let's take a moment just to take a deep breath. Take a moment to remember that right now we're here and we're safe. I'm going to take a break right now to talk to you about a couple of sponsors. And then after the break, we'll come back and we'll talk about how to beat COVID 19 together. This program would be impossible without sponsorships. And I have two long running sponsors that I absolutely love that. Uh, I'm a customer of both, was a customer of both before they became sponsors. Um, And the first of those companies is BetterHelp.com. BetterHelp is an online counseling service with over 10,000 licensed therapists. Finding a therapist is hard. BetterHelp makes it easier. You go to uh, BetterHelp.com slash ScienceMike. And when you go there, uh, there's a little quiz you fill out, a little questionnaire, and that will let the experts at BetterHelp connect you with a counselor that you're going to love. Now, what if it's just not a fit? Everybody worries about it. If I go to therapy, what if I don't like the person? What if there's personality conflict? What if I don't like their methodology? Guess what? No additional cost. BetterHelp will assign you to a new counselor anytime for any reason. It's a wonderful service. Over a million people have signed up. I'm one of them. It's affordable, private online counseling that you can use from the convenience of your device. That means here in a pandemic, you can get mental health support while social distancing. Best of all, for Ask Science Mike listeners, you'll get 10% off your first month just for going to that URL, betterhelp.com slash science Mike. So why not get started on the path to the support you need and deserve today by visiting betterhelp.com slash science Mike. And gosh, a real lifeline in my home has been KiwiCo. KiwiCo is an, um, a hands-on 
educational product. They send you something called a crate in the mail. These are sustainably made, uh, designed in California products that are centered around STEAM, science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. Uh, you pick a line. There's lines centered around those different different disciplines for people of all ages, from from infants all the way up to uh, 104, as they say. You pick a line, and then they come to you automatically every month. We look so forward to getting our Kiwi crate of crates every month. We get four as a family. We do four different lines and then set them on the dining room table and decide who gets what. We love it. The adults love it. My teens love it. But children love it too. I get so many pictures that you all send me of people putting together their Kiwi crates. It is an absolutely phenomenal service that makes learning fun. So you can get started today by going to kiwico.com slash AskScienceMike. They'll give you 60% off your first month on any line so you can get something fun to do while we are being safer at home. Okay. It's not hopeless. It feels hopeless. It's not hopeless. I said right at the top of the program, other countries have beat COVID-19. They pushed the pandemic back. They are containing it, and their societies have returned to some sense of normal. People are going to restaurants, folks. Can you imagine? Just going to restaurants, and they're safe. People are going to school. Children are going to school. How? Well, by following the well-understood guidelines that epidemiologists have created to contain pandemics. So there's two things we should talk about. Number one is how we respond as individuals, which is something we have a lot of control over. And two, how we respond as a society, which requires us organizing together, which is a little harder. For individuals, I like to tell people to think about the risk triangle. How do you determine in any given situation how much risk you have of contracting COVID-19 or if you already have it and don't know it, spreading COVID-19 to other people? The risk triangle is made up of three things. One, distance. Two, duration. Three, environment. I'll say that again. One is distance. Two is duration. Three is environment. One is the distance we are from other people. You want to be at least six feet apart from other people. Ideally, if you're indoors, more like 10 feet from other people. Distance, because we understand COVID is spread by droplets of saliva. The more distance you have, the more likely it is the big, heavy drops fall to the ground instead of striking you or your clothing. So distance, six feet to 10 feet. Indoors, I go for 10 feet, not six. But distance is just one factor. Number two is duration, how long you are with a person or people, okay? Uh, if someone passes you on the sidewalk for a moment, there's very little risk, even if they're not wearing a mask. Frankly, if you're outdoors, they pass you on the sidewalk. 
the duration is very small. So in one, one experiment, they found that sitting indoors with someone at a table and talking for five minutes, people covered each other with more droplets than if someone sneezed on someone else at a distance of two and a half feet outdoors. What? Yeah. The kinds of activities we need to think are no big deal and low risk. Eating, drinking, talking, that is like the highest risk. So the duration matters. It means if we're going to have a long duration with someone, like we're talking to a friend, it means we should increase the distance. Do you see what's happening? If I'm having a conversation with a friend, I need to, the farther apart I am from that friend, the safer we are as the duration of our conversation continues. But that's only two, distance and duration. Number three is the environment. What are we looking for in the environment? Well, there's several things. Number one, how many people are there? More people equals more risk especially more family units, okay? So technically, if you had you know, two family units, but it's 30 people, the risk is still really low if that family is isolating correctly. Uh, but that's, that's an aside. The number of people is a factor in the environment. Uh, this is why we're saying avoid large gatherings, right? If the risk at a gathering of 50 people is, say, 15%, which is a reasonable number that's that's data-driven in many counties in the United States right now. If you have 50 people, there's a 15% there's someone there, 15% chance someone there is actively spreading COVID. If you have 100 people, now you have a 30% chance, right? So getting together that way is risky. This is why bars are a problem. This is why restaurants are a problem. You reach statistical certainty that someone is there as COVID-19. They're spreading it in droplets indoors. It's hanging in the air for hours. Oof. Now people are sick. So the number of people in the environment is a factor. The amount of protective equipment. Are people wearing masks? Are people wearing face shields? That's a big factor. Is it indoors or is it outdoors? Outdoors is wildly safer. Number one, because of droplet dispersal. There's lots of space for droplets to disperse outdoors. There tends to be a lot more moving air outdoors. Um, And number two, Uh, The outdoors has kind of a self-sterilizing effect with viruses. The sun is no friend of COVID or SARS-CoV-2. If you're in a droplet, the sun starts to evaporate that that droplet quickly and then burn off the lipid coating around the viral shell. And now that virus is, is dead. It's inert. So outdoors is just a lot safer than indoors. And then sanitization of self and surfaces. Washing hands, not touching your face, sterilizing and sanitizing uh, surfaces regularly. All those factors play into the environment. Distance from others, duration of encounters, and then environmental protections. How many people are there masks and other protective equipment? Are we indoors? Are we outdoors? And are we sanitizing ourselves and shared surfaces? With that triangle, you want to make the sides of the triangle as big as you reasonably can. That means more distance from others, less duration with others, and the most environmental protections that you can get, which means seeing fewer people gathering outdoors wherever possible 
and sanitizing yourself and surfaces. When we follow the risk triangle, guess what? The risk of transmission is relatively low. We have had friends over to our house on a limited basis. You know, one family unit at a time. We hang out in our backyard. We sterilize our outdoor furniture. And I've gone through with a tape measure and set up, you know, seating that feels pretty normal. uh, But where there is proper distance enforced naturally. And then while we're talking, we wear masks. And then if we you know, have a drink or we get some food, uh, we spread out a little bit more to eat and drink because our masks are off. Um, outdoors, I'm comfortable wearing a mask being six feet apart. If there's going to be eating or drinking, that's got to be 10 feet now. And uh, again, this is not a frequent thing. It's like every other week we might have someone over, someone who is taking similar precautions as ourselves. We don't hug. We don't shake hands. Uh, We invite people through the side gate of our home to the backyard where the seating is laid out. Uh, And then, you know, we, we bring people drinks. We wash our hands. We make sure everything is sterilized and sanitized. I follow the CDC guidelines. So you can see now why bars, restaurants, and social gatherings in people's homes are so risky. This is, seems to be where most of the spread is happening today. By the way, you know, we've seen the data now. It doesn't look like the Black Lives Matter protests are a significant spreading event. They were outdoors and mask compliance was extremely high at those events. And we're seeing in data, now this could change, but so far the data we're seeing is these spreader events, they are not correlated to or related to uh, the BLM marches. They are, the, the, the contact tracing we're seeing leads to what? Bars, restaurants, and social gatherings in people's homes where people are taking their masks off. Masks seem to be highly effective and a relatively inexpensive intervention. So outdoor spaces with physical distancing and environmental precautions are relatively low risk. We don't have to be hermits, friends. We don't have to say, well, I got to see someone I just missed talking to people. You can. You can see a limited number of people outdoors wearing a mask. It's summer. It's hot. I get it. Get together in the evening. Maybe sweat a little bit. I don't know. I'm just telling you, indoor gathering is a terrible idea. A house party. You're get, it's a very high chance you're leading to the death of a human person from that event. So that's what we do as individuals. We, got, you, we guide our actions using the risk triangle of distance, duration, and environment. Now what about society? The societies, the cultures that have effectively flattened the curve and contained the pandemic, what do they do? Well, first, they had a social safety net that was robust, and they expanded it rapidly and immediately with an emphasis on protecting people's individual incomes and livelihoods. People will not obey lockdown orders or stay-at-home orders when they are existentially afraid of their basic viability. 
I'll talk to this a little bit more at the very end, but my inability to earn an income in the face of this pandemic was a crushing psychological blow for me. Crushing. So I understand the sense of desperation people feel when they're locked in their home and have no prospects to provide for themselves and their families. The societies that beat COVID had programs and interventions to address that sense of crushing fear. What we're seeing in the United States is an overspending on corporate rescue programs. The Fed is funneling trillions of dollars into corporations right now. Trillions of dollars. Which is not then getting redistributed out to the workers of those companies. So the U.S. is wildly overspending on corporate rescue while underspending where it will help the economy and society the most. That's just people. Our... My spending is your income, and your spending is my income. So the, 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 the economic shock is so bad right now because, what, people don't have income. They can't spend. This is, this is not complex stuff. This is not controversial stuff. So we're seeing a lot of resistance, especially among conservative law- lawmakers, but not exclusively at expanding the social safety net. Um, for ideological reasons. I have no patience for it. So, that's one. Two, consistent messaging and policies. We have this patchwork, culture war, excuse, just bullshit right now. It's ridiculous. Masks work. So, let's get consistent messaging. Do you know what good it could do if Donald Trump just wore a mask publicly? We'd end this thing. I mean, the, <laughs> it'd be an about face. People would change their behavior so quickly. So we need consistent messaging on masks, what the criteria is for reopening economies on a city by city and county by county basis, and contact tracing and compliance to contact tracing. If state, federal, and local governments were sharing the same messaging on the same policies, we'd be in a lot better shape. We do need lockdowns with high compliance as needed. On a local basis, we should be monitoring especially hospital admissions, especially ICU admissions. And then guess what? If you don't have a wildly exploded pandemic like we do, a two-week lockdown is enough. Because if you keep the total number of cases small enough where the clusters are actually traceable, you can go in and quarantine all the people who've been exposed, stop the spread of the disease. It works. They're doing it everywhere else, friends. They are, they're, just, they're already doing this everywhere else. But you, that means there has to be actual compliance with the lockdowns. We have anonymized cell phone data. When we're locking down, even in progressive cities, people aren't locking down. People's about... About uh, after about 11 days into the lockdown in Los Angeles, people started moving around again. We, 
they've got a, people are wearing GPS trackers all the time and call them cell phones. Advertisers can pull that data, so so can researchers. When we lock down, people have to actually lock down. Local monitoring is essential. If you want to know how your county in the U.S. is doing, I've got a link to an amazing tool in the show notes. Go look for that. It's quite good. We need contact tracing and widespread testing. That's essential. You have to, when you have a positive infection, if you're contained. Right now, contact tracing is not especially helpful in most places because the infection rates are so high. Only way to fix that is going to be really severe lockdowns, stern lockdowns. Maybe 21 days. If people would comply for 21 days, we could go back to this policy. Uh, But contact tracing, you know, actually answering investigators when they ask who you've seen and when. And widespread testing. Our testing capacity is not expanding to the degree that it needs to to be effective. And ample personal protective equipment, both for hospital workers and the general public. Right? We don't need N95 masks. Now, this stuff about masks not being healthy is not true. There are very, very, very few health conditions that mean you can't wear a mask. And I mean very few. Now, there are legitimate psychological challenges that make wearing a mask difficult. We can have a kind of anxiety that leads to a particular type of claustrophobia. Makes us feel like we can't breathe. I don't discount that. That's significant. Um, but there are very few physiological conditions that mean we can't wear a mask. Um, part of it is the the masks we're wearing. Um, if I might make a, a recommendation here, there's a company called Adams. It's a great shoe company. They have made what I think is the perfect non-hospital worker everyday mask. They're not a sponsor of the program. They've never heard of me. I just think this mask is exceptional. I was having a hard time. My family, Jenny and the girls, they hate wearing masks. They do it because me, but they hate it. Um, Paper masks generate a lot of waste. A lot of homemade solutions, um, you know, are cumbersome or too thin or too thick. Adam's masks are perfect. So I've got a link to the Adam's everyday mask. In the show notes. I highly suggest you check it out. I'm going to put mine on right now. It takes that long. It's already on. It's very comfortable. It doesn't fog my glasses. It's the perfect thickness. To be breathable. But also. um, To actually be effective. At containing droplets. It's a phenomenal mask. It's hand washable. I wash mine every day. Uh, I've got a a couple of them. They're they're affordable. Best of all. Uh, But. You know, we're going to need personal protective equipment manufactured at scale. And that's all it takes. And it would be better, friends, if we did these things as individuals and as society. Are we going to get back to normal? No. But we can find a new normal that's better than what we have now that lets us see people that lets us open schools back up, which is really important, not only for children's education, but poor families rely on schools for basic nutrition. We got to get schools back open. But here's the big thing. And listen to me. 
normal is never coming back. I'm going to say that again. Normal, the normal we had before COVID-19 is never coming back. And that's hard. Before this is over, everyone is going to be touched by this pandemic. Even if it's mutated to be less lethal, the number of people who will have severe case presentations, the number of people who will be long haulers, the number of people who deal with MISC is going to be staggering. The mental health effects and economic effects of this extended, self-inflicted pain from this pandemic, it is going to reshape us. And that's hard. The mental health landscape in my house has been so challenging. So challenging, friends. My patterns of compulsive medicating got severe. My daughter's eating disorder returned with a vengeance. And both my wife, Jenny, and my other daughter, Macy, had challenges of their own, unique in severity and presentation of our in our entire lives. And the financial devastation, my income comes from selling tickets. I am in the events business. So don't hear me lecturing as some kind of outsider on the economic impact of COVID-19. My business income dropped by 90%. <laughs> 90 Acute, absolute financial devastation. I have wondered how we are going to pay rent and eat meals for months now. And I'm fortunate because we've been able to. And I, you know, I'm I'm very fortunate that, you know, that last week I picked up some consulting clients again. I used to do corporate consulting and um, I leaned back into that and signed a couple of contracts and We are out of the red zone for now. That is a great feeling. Um, But just think about how many people are in that situation right now. It might be you, but it might not be. Statistically, most of the people listening are not in personally experiencing that financial devastation. But I want you, if you like this program and you think fondly of me, I want you to think how many people, how many millions of people are in the situation I just described and what that's doing in their lives and in their homes. Sense of isolation. Sense of fear. And stress. We have maybe the largest mental health crisis in modern history. An invisible enemy sweeping across the globe 
epic in its utter indifference. A lot of countries have done a good job. A lot of countries should be lauded for the ways that they have banded together. But not America. Friends, so far, we have failed. And our failure The weight and magnitude of that failure is being felt in black and brown communities. And as Andre Henry says, it doesn't have to be this way. We can begin to live our lives today using the risk triangle of distance, duration, and environment and then organize to make societal interventions of an expanded social safety net, consistent messaging and policies, lockdowns as needed with high compliance, contact tracing and widespread testing, and ample personal protective equipment. And if we do those things, life will not go back to normal, but it will get better. And we can make a new normal together as we wait for medical researchers to do what they do best and get us to a set of medical care interventions and vaccinations that permanently eradicate this pandemic. I believe that we can do this even though we have not so far. Maybe this is a humiliation that we need. And my hope is that as COVID stops being an abstract thing that's happening to those coastal elites in New York and starts being something happening in every city and county in America, we will wake up and we will respond and we will save lives. Thank you for listening, my friends. I can't wait to talk with you next week. Take care.